Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. August 31st, 2023, the March 4th Trump edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, of course, by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City. Hello, John. Hello. Good day to you. And also in this pre-Labor Day haze, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Hello, John. This week on the GapFest, how will the just-announced Trump trial disrupt slash affect the Republican primary? Then what is the deal with Vivek Ramaswamy? Should we take him seriously? And then a fascinating new study about what makes America's best places best and worst places worst. Plus, we love cocktail chatter. And a reminder that we have a live show coming up in Madison, Wisconsin at the Majestic Theater on Wednesday, October 25th. It's going to be in downtown Madison. We are really, really ten- on tentacles. Now, we're not, what are you, now you're not on tentacles. You're on tender hooks. Tender hooks. I don't see why we'd be on tender hooks. We're not on tender hooks. We're just excited to go to Madison. I'm really excited to go to Madison. Haven't been there. Our show starts at 7.30. There's going to be a VIP happy hour uh, from six to seven. I think there's still a couple of tickets left for that. Go to slate.com slash gabfest live to get tickets for the happy hour and for the show. Majestic is a beautiful venue. It's going to be a great venue for a show because it's really nice and compact and we're all going to be very close together and uh, having a, a very intimate and delightful and buoyant evening. So slate.com slash live for our Madison show at the Majestic Theater on Wednesday, October 25th. March 4th, previously best known first as being the date that's a great sentence and second for being Emily Bazelon's birthday, we'll now have another red line in the calendar which is the day Trump's trial for trying to overturn the election begins. Judge Tanya Chutkin rejected prosecution requests to start the trial in January and defense efforts to push it off until 2026 and said it will instead begin the day before the Super Tuesday primary. It is likely to be the first of the Trump criminal trials to take place. Uh, The New York State trial that's the, that's the Stormy Daniels payoff election finance machination one. We'll follow that trial. The Mar-a-Lago documents case is slated to go before the general election too, but it's so complicated that maybe it won't happen before the general election. Um, Judge Chutkin said, if this case involved a professional athlete, it would be inappropriate to schedule a trial to accommodate her schedule. Mr. Trump will be treated with no more or less deference than any other defendant. She said that, said that in response to Trump's efforts to kind of push it way off till after the campaign. Emily, is this a rapid trial date and is it unreasonable? It's rapid. It's probably reasonable, particularly because so much of the evidence is pretty familiar. It came some of it from um, the congressional inquiry into January 6th. A lot of it is discovery from Trump or from um, people connected with him that they should already know. So they made a really big deal about how there are millions of pages of documents. But some of that's duplicative. Some of it's already known to them. It's rapid, though. You often see major criminal cases that get put off into the future for longer than Judge Chuckin is talking about. Obviously, there's this looming question about whether if Trump were to be elected president in November 2024 and took office that January, whether this case would continue because then he would control the Justice Department. 
The other thing I was interested in reading, which I didn't know, is that the right to a speedy trial does not just belong to the defendant. It actually belongs to the public. The Supreme Court has several times said that there's an interest in a speedy trial that is separate from and even in conflict with the rights of the accused, which is interesting and makes sense to me as a legal principle separate from Trump. What do you guys think? Oh, I've always thought that that one of the key principles of justice is that it should be swift and and certain and mild. Uh, Caesar Beccaria, Jeremy Bentham. That's those are 19th century utilitarians from from whom that phrase comes. But that you want, I mean, as with children, as you want, or with a pet, that you want them to to associate the the, the wrong act with the punishment, and for the public, which is now remembers the wrong act, to associate the punishment with that wrong act. So that's where it's effective. If things get stretched too far, everyone forgets what it's for. People's memories go shoddy, and it just doesn't serve the purpose of justice. I think it's a I think we would be better served as a society if lots of things were done very quickly and cursorily, not, you know, not even have jury trials, not even have this kind of elaborate armature of preparation for a lot of things which we're going to punish, but punish in a much milder way than we punish now. Trump, of course, is facing many years in prison. Different case. (laughs) (laughs) If you look at the calendar, it is between now and Election Day on November 5th, 2024, it is clotted with Trump legal this is and that's. January 15th is the day of the Iowa caucuses. It's also the E. Jean Carroll civil defamation suit day. Um, you've got this Super Tuesday, March 5th. This uh, federal case on j- the election interference is March 4th. May 20th is the classified documents trial, which is basically at the period that the um, – that the primaries are ending. Um, and that's just a few of them. I mean, there's there's like a whole bunch of things that'll bounce in and out of that. Just to go back to Emily's point that the prosecution also has an interest in a speedy trial. I think no, if the you people, are- the people, the people. The people, us. excuse me. Well, the, the prosecution in some ways represents the people, I suppose. Supposedly. Anyway, continued. Uh, but it, wouldn't the response to that be, well, if you wanted a speedy trial so much, why did you take so long to bring these charges? And why are you bringing them- almost four years or three years after the the events at hand. Like, if you're so interested in speed, get around to it faster, Jack Smith. Because doing the work correctly, measuring twice and cutting once, puts you in the position to have a speedy trial, that all of your information is thorough and checked and meets a certain minimum bar before you get into the business of having to haul somebody in and make them sit in a courtroom. Well, but then you, then the Trump response would be, well, don't I, as a defendant, you've, you've taken all this time to do this work to, to gather all this evidence against me. Presumably you want me to have, have the same contemplative chance to look at this and think about it and, and make sense of it so that I can offer a, a defense that's as robust as I am entitled to. Right. But hunting for the truffles in the forest is different than having them presented for you in, on a plate. So the, the prosecution had to go hunt for those truffles for months and months and months and months. But when it's given to the, the defendant, it's all there cleaned and right on the plate. Do you clean truffles? But you get my point, people. I mean, I, I'm sure that's what the prosecution says. I know if I were a defense attorney. No, it's say, also it's reality. A, I would say if I were a defense attorney, I would say, come on, you've you, there's so much in here. You you have presented well, a, a very argument. favorable you present a very favorable case for you, but like there's all this other stuff in these eleven twelve million pages of documents which which tell a different story and you and you have to give us time to to be able to present the full picture to the jury right. that's going to hear it. 
But that's fine. But that the time needed to do that is different than the time needed to put all those pages together. So to compare the time it took to present to, to put a case together and the time it takes to read a case, those are two different things that you're comparing. I mean, I think the government's delay is a real factor here and a real issue. I think the best argument the government can make is that they wanted to be extremely careful before indicting someone, which they don't always do, right? They clearly like held every single piece of evidence up to the light and scrutinized it. Or I don't know, maybe clearly is the wrong word. But when they could argue that the amount of time they took was all in the service of making sure this indictment was warranted. It's also true, of course, that it took the attorney general a long time to appoint Jack Smith. So actually, that's really the cause of the delay. And and one of the dynamics here was that Congress investigating really kind of forced the hand of the Justice Department. It didn't seem like Merrick Garland, our attorney general, had an appetite for this until all of that evidence became public because of Congress. I think Trump's lawyers could bring all of that up in court. Judge Chutkin seems to be saying... You have seven months, and I think that's long enough. And yes, you're very busy, but that is not a factor that I'm going to take into account, the idea that you have to fly off to campaign. Um, And that's where I think her professional athlete metaphor comes in. It is a big struggle in this case, though, to figure out when to treat it as an ordinary case, right? I find that reassuring. I like it. I think I said this when we were talking about the mugshots, like whenever they're like, this is just the rule of law and here we go. And you're like every other ordinary defendant, my heart sort of breathes a little easier. And yet she was also saying, well, lots of people, you have lots of resources, you're wealthy. And so that affects how I think about this preparation. And that's not exactly like treating him just like everyone else. I was very surprised to learn, I don't know if you knew this, especially Emily, that there is no way to appeal a trial date. The trial, the judge declares a trial date and then you're, you, that's your trial date. Well, you can try. You can always like bring up some emergency appeal. It's called a writ of mandamus. You can do that with really anything practically, but I don't think it's going to work is the point. Like this is something that district court judges have enormous discretion over. John, the New York Times is Roth Douthat, the Wall Street Journal. They've been deploring the timing of this. But as you have pointed out, like there is just a lot of legal uh, mess that Trump is in and you have to deal with it at some point. Is there a better option for the timing? There is a clock that ticks through till the election. And these cases, if Trump wins, go away. It seems like this is kind of like in the Jack Goldsmith point, which is like bringing these cases in any way is going to look political and therefore you shouldn't do it. But then then you have a lack of accountability um, because you argue when a person is president, they can't be held accountable. And then when they're not president, you say they can't be held accountable because they might be running again. So it's going to cause damage. There's going to be a real challenge to institutions and our public square and all of that. But then, you know, a sitting president shouldn't have spent more than two months trying to overturn an election. So it's obviously going to make some sort of mess of the Republican primary and possibly of the general election. Uh, I mean, in particular, if you assume this trial starts March 4th, on the next day, the largest tranche of, of, of voting in the primaries will take place on the very next day. I mean, before there's been, certainly before there's been a verdict, but while the trial is going on, what form of mess, John, do you expect this is going to take and, and how might it play out or too early to even speculate? Well, they're the, the little messes. So Kenneth Chesbro, who is one of the 19 in the Fulton County case, his case goes to trial on the 23rd of October and there are cameras in the courtroom, right, Emily? So 
that's going to have its own stuff is going to be said in that case, which is going to drive a Trumpish news cycle. Trump will respond to it. So that's the beginning rumblings. And then Trump has to physically show up at right. Yeah. Emily, he has to be physically in court for all of these cases. So there's all of that ridiculous theater, which I try not to contribute to, but, um, you know, let's see how I get, let's see how I do. You mean in terms of getting pulled into covering like him walking into the courtroom? Being the, in terms of showing a, in terms of showing a, a, a limousine rolling down the highway. I think there is a way to handle these issues in the way we try to talk about them here, which is to understand the legal system, to, to examine the tensions, just as you excellently were, David, on the question of speedy trial and use it as, an, as a way to go back to first principles. What are we trying to protect here? What does this illuminate about our system and about this moment we're in? All of which are really important things, and you can use this stuff to elevate those, but not if you're not careful. So I think the chance for spectacle um, is basically constant um, as these various legal things happen. What's the upside and what's the effect? I mean, right now, the polls dipped in the tiniest way uh, against Trump post the arraignment in um, in Georgia and his skipping the debate. But it's such a small amount, it doesn't really matter. And his lead is still considerable and his opponents haven't coalesced. So everything that was true before seems to be true again, which is that this will only solidify his position as the clear front runner of his party, all of this theater. I'm really flummoxed by this question about where, when and where these trials should take place or when these trials should take place. Because no matter what happens, Republicans, for the most part, are going to believe these are political prosecutions to prevent Trump from running. Should they believe that? I don't think so, but they are going to do it. And the scheduling is going to reinforce that. On the other hand, voters need the information that these trials provide. As we've discussed, the failure of the Senate to impeach and convict and bar Trump from running for office means that that the kind of the 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 natural mechanism to punish him and prevent him from taking a place in in political life again didn't happen. But the, this the this other branch of government, the justice system, has this capacity to provide useful information to voters, and it is on the justice system to provide that useful information to voters and to do just. I mean, actually, the purpose is to do justice, but in the course of doing justice and bringing criminal prosecutions where necessary, they are going to provide useful information to voters that they need. And even Republicans who think these prosecutions are political are going to get information that they you know, may or may not find welcome from these trials. So the trials kind of have to take place, but they're kind of going to politicize everything. Um, they they do also don't serve as an actual bar to Trump running for office or serving as president. Um, it's so awful and complicated, but it is absolutely necessary that some of these do happen and they happen briskly. It's necessary. The other thing about the political calendar that I feel like is important to think about in light of the criticisms from, you know, the Wall Street Journal and from Ross doubt that is there's a difference between the effect on the primary calendar and the general election, right? So part of the underlying concern here from conservatives, I think, is that the Republicans are going to choose a flawed candidate because they're going to be in this kind of defensive, you know, like circle the wagons around their guy. And then they're going to be sorry because it's going to turn out that all this stuff comes out and the general electorate is like, no, thank you. I mean, 
that I don't feel super sympathetic to as a political, as a consideration that Judge Chutkin and the other judges should take into account. Right. Blaming the legal system for our bad choices. Right. right. I mean, I and that said, I, I do, it would be so much better if this were all happening a year ago, right? Like if the Justice Department had gotten moving faster. It's funny because at the time, I at least was pretty sympathetic to not wanting to mix the Justice Department up in what seemed like just an incredibly political investigation. It is true, however, that once Congress brought to light all these facts and this testimony, it was much more inevitable. And it's just really interesting that the dynamic between Congress and the Justice Department has been so influential and has wound up very much influencing the calendar, which in turn has its own political meaning separate from its legal significance. I'm also not a fan of the this is so divisive argument, which is trotted out in various different places that it's divisive to to, um, use the legal system against a political candidate. But you know what's really divisive is the system that's set up to handle the divisions in American life is politics and politics is handled by elections and you do that so that you don't have violence. And you know what's super divisive is when you take that system that's been pretty much healthy for uh, the entire history of the republic and you turn it on its head by denying the results of an election. That's super divisive. So I'm going to be in the jury pool for the Chutkin case because I live in D.C., Trump is very unpopular in D.C. I think he he got definitely sub 10 percent of the vote in the 2020 election. It may have been even around 5 percent. Trump is going to want to move this case out of D.C. But the crimes were committed in D.C. The alleged crimes were committed in D.C. And the other January 6th defendants who have been charged have all uh, been brought to trial in D.C. And they have not succeeded in moving their trials. Is there any possibility that Trump succeeds in moving this case out of D.C. to somewhere where not 90 percent of the electorate dislikes him. I think that ultimately this question of venue will probably go up to the Supreme Court, which is another reason. I mean, they can decline to hear it, right? Um, I assume that Trump's lawyers will appeal it to the federal appeals court. This is another reason why this March 4th trial date may not hold, right? There's all kinds of motions and other aspects of the decision-making here by the district court judge that can go up on what's called interlocutory appeal, where the the case is still going on, but you say, like, well, wait, what about this decision? And you ask the appeals court for a ruling. I mean, the, the answer would just have to be that there's so much bias against Trump in D.C. that he can't get a fair trial there. It is true that sometimes when there's an incredibly notorious, well-publicized trial that um, the courts move it out of its location just because it's so hot. So like a serial murder or something that, you know, a school shooting somewhere where like everyone is just so angry. This seems different to me, but I don't know. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe the level of publicity in D.C. is just different or animosity is different than it would be anywhere else. I guess the reason I think it's different is this is a national story in like the deepest sense. And so other than just like, well, people in DC didn't vote for this guy. I don't really see why the jury pool in DC is polluted by the publicity any more than anywhere else. Right. And this argument has failed for all the hundreds of January 6th defendants who've tried to make it also. Yes. And they're not Trump, but it's the similar issue. Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? Who wouldn't? Emily says no. I, I, mean, I say yes. I say yes. I say up yes. to your neck in in the Good. gab fest is the way a sensible well, person okay. lives. All right. We're going to assume that you probably do because you've listened this far. Anyway, stick around for our bonus segment. Today, we're going to be talking about 
when, under what circumstances you might join a volunteer militia to fight for your country. Uh, but this segment is just for Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you so much. You have supported us and helped keep the show going for so many years. If you're not a Slate Plus member, we would love it if you'd sign up. You'll get bonus segments of every episode of the GabFest, as well as many other Slate podcasts, special discounts to live shows like our Madison show, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and a lot more. So if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. Slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Do we have to talk about Vivek Ramaswamy? Yes, we do. Briefly, Ramaswamy is now flirting with second place in GOP polling, which means that he's only, say, 38% behind Trump, while Ron DeSantis is more like 40% behind. He won, and I'm using that word loosely and poetically, the Republican debate last week by being loudest and most annoying and most Google searched of the candidates on the stage. The 38-year-old entrepreneur is enjoying himself uh, immensely on the campaign trail. He is brash. He says the most ridiculous crap and doesn't care about whether what he says has any relationship to truth. He is full of energy. He seemingly imperturbable. You can say anything to him. He'll do, he'll say whatever he wants, do whatever he wants. There are two schools of thought about him, uh, I think. One is this guy is incredibly annoying and his performative trollishness will not wear well and he will subside even further in the polls, like down from 10 to 4%, the way ludicrous candidates like Ben Carson and Herman Cain did back in 2016. The other school of thought is if Trump is the presumptive nominee, Ramaswamy has positioned himself brilliantly to be important, either as Trump's running mate or as a possible, you know, other big uh, figure in a in a Trump race, or potentially if Trump washes out in some fashion late in the campaign as a as an adequate sub sub in as a sla- slavish mini me who can step in. So, does Vivek Ramaswamy matter, John? He continues to present what's been a malady in American presidential politics for a long time. Um, But now, you know, it used to be a malady off to the side. And then um, and then Donald Trump became president and it and it 
entered into the Oval Office. And that's the idea that basically the solutions are all easy. They haven't been done because it's not that the problems are complex. It's that everybody's bought and paid for and I alone can fix it. So in some cases, the solutions are easy and government gets in the way, but not in every case. Um, Also, the reasons that solutions don't um, immediately solve problems is that the complexity is part of politics and like you can't exist in a political system and then say, I will be able to wave it away. You have to operate within the political system as Donald Trump learned when he couldn't do all of the things he said he would be able to do easily. But uh, Ramaswamy reanimates this and adds to it what Donald Trump did, which is he has been successful in the private sector. And so people are like, well, if he could do it in this sphere, he could do it here, which the people who have been successful in business and then went into government and were successful um, um, George Schultz, Robert Rubin, others knew the difference between the two. And that was what made them successful. So to suggest there isn't a difference um, has been a disaster for those who didn't understand the difference. So in that sense, while he may go nowhere, uh, and I think your your second assessment, David, is the right one, which is that he is uh, is great for Donald Trump. He continues to keep the conversation in a Trump area. He doesn't attack Trump. Um, he'll and and he keeps people uh, you know excited and entertained and 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 along your previous wise axiom that if the person who's having fun, I guess maybe it was Nixon's or is it yours, David? Um, it's you, me. Okay. It's me. Um, <laughs> Credit where it's due. I like yeah. that. Idea. It's Nixon. The person who's having fun is the person who is um, you know going to do better in politics. He's definitely having fun, but I think he there is that larger danger. Um, and it also, final thing is that, um, uh, it, it, it creates a notion of the presidency that, um, the green lantern problem, which is that all problems can be solved just if a president asserts their will. Um, and that's not, um, Brendan Nyan is the author of that theory, um, which is obviously not the way the place works. Emily, I feel like you and me, uh, we've met this guy before. I do not know Vivek Ramaswamy, but you, if you went to an Ivy league college, uh, you have met this kind of particularly virulent, cocky asshole who simply will never shut up and will never listen. And I'm sure as a woman, it's even even worse. Like it's I probably I'm like a version of that myself. Um, but but he just seems like th- this. You, you don't hate anything as much as something that's just a little bit worse than you. Uh, and he just seems like a very familiar type. Yeah, I mean, Josh Barrow wrote this very funny piece about how Josh, as a fellow Harvard alum, was like, I know this guy because I was the same kind of obnoxious little shit as this person. And he has this whole section guy, which um, like the guy in your section at some elite school who just goes on at length and is very impressed with his own intelligence. I mean... I got to say, I hear from faculty at Yale Law School that who where Ramaswamy went that he really was <laughs> extremely smart and gifted at speaking in class. And I think there's a quickness that you can see on the debate stage. I guess what I get grumpy about is just the straight line from spending a ton of money to run for president towards celebrity and fame and attention. And he just seems to be willing to say and do anything to court that. And it's totally going to work for him. He's going to be famous forever. It doesn't matter if he ends up with a tiny percentage of the vote. He can kind of dine out on this. And I just don't think that's good. (laughs) Like, I felt like Chris Christie did not slay him in the debate. But I felt like you could understand why Christie and Pence and Haley 
And really, and those governors up there on the stage would all just be like, dude, you don't deserve to be here. I'm not sure I exactly understood Mike Pence's comment, but I'll let you all parse that out. For me, it's pretty simple. That's something a U.S. president can do with focus, and I'll deliver on it. Well, let me explain it to you. Let me explain it to you, if I can. I'll go slower this time. Anybody who can make Mike Pence that angry is really doing something extraordinary. I mean, his former boss got people to try to hang him, and Pence has never demonstrated anything like one tenth of what he was. He was he was steaming at Ramaswamy. I think. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I uh, you know, there was a time when having pot stirrers in politics was was good. It kind of cleared the air, put people on their heels, made them articulate and defend things. I don't, we're not in that place right. anymore. Right. Good point. Really good point, John. I mean, John Anderson, uh, Ross Perot. Ross Perot. Irritating, but useful perhaps. And also Ramaswamy is not, I mean, quickness, mm, I don't know. I mean, he certainly has a quick remark, but like a lot of the things he says are just straight up bonkers, like um, the idea he'll let Putin take some stuff from Ukraine if he'll de-link from China. Like, not only is that goofy on its face, but secondly, it misunderstands Putin, who, um, you know, we've learned a lot about. um, And um, you give him Ukraine and like, he's not likely to keep the second part of the bargain. Also, he has that the zany idea about basically Taiwan. We'll protect them until we can make semiconductors on our own. um, And then, you know, we'll take a different posture. He denies that he said those things. But then the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, everybody goes, well, here's the transcript and the actual verbatim of you saying exactly what we said you said. Um, And we're just not, you know, we're past the time where that's um, anything more than really dangerous. Um, And it's not that clever and it's not that quick and it's not that insightful. I mean, yeah, and he wants to get rid of the Fed, essentially. He wants to tie the dollar to commodity prices, which is an insane idea. He says climate change is a hoax. He doesn't want people under 25 to be able to vote unless they're in the military or have passed. Pass a uh, test. Pass a civics test. Wants to fire 75% of government employees overall. I mean, it's not, it is not a uh, well-articulated philosophy for how the next four years are going to be a time of American prosperity and peace. And also, you want to give a civic test, and then when asked about what Mike Pence uh, could or could not have done on January 6th, you create <laughs> this go- this goofy idea about what the president of the Senate can do, which was only one shade off from saying, well, if he turned his magic ring, he could summon the unicorns, and they would solve the problem. Before we leave, I do want to talk about the, as an Ivy League asshole myself, just talk about the different strategies of Ivy League assholery that you see from Trump, Ramaswamy, and DeSantis, each of whom uses their Ivy Leagueness in an interesting way. I think Trump uses the Ivy League, his pen, the fact that he went to Penn as sort of validation. I went to Penn. He always likes to talk about how he went to Penn. I'm as smart as these pointy heads. Um, did I mention that I went to Penn? He loves it. He really, really wants the credit for having gone to Penn. Ramaswamy, on the other hand, does not mention that he's like, double Ivy League credential all the time, but he makes it implicit. It's a, he just manifests this Harvard style of steamroller cockiness. You're an idiot. Um, he just, he, he, he manifests Ivy League asshole whole without saying it. And DeSantis, who is as credentialed as, as Ramaswamy in the same way, rejects it and explicitly rejects it, says, I know it. I was in it. I understand it. I'm now going to destroy it. 
And, you know, that represents, I feel like, a full panoply of how Republicans uh, relate to elite colleges. And it's amazing. The Right. The populist egghead was something that Ted Cruz used to do, which is what Ramaswamy kind of is trying to be as well, which is a neat trick if you could pull it off. It certainly didn't work for Ted Cruz. But, you know, usually if you were Brandon an egghead, you would get like that was it. You know, Adlai Stevenson, like you don't you don't get very far. But I mean, I don't think Ramaswamy is going to get anywhere either. But I do think there's a thing there's a way in which the fact that Ramaswamy is traitor to liberal elite is good. Yeah. Like that's valuable to him in the way that if your Democrats love when a cop or a farmer or any white guy with a drawl says something humane, Democrats are like, look at this. It's so great. You know, that's what Republicans love it when someone who has an Ivy League credential is out there saying the liberals are destroying America. That's why DeSantis should be the one in the best political position, because he doesn't exude the Ivy League thing and he's out to destroy it. So from a from a behavioral standpoint, he wouldn't rub anybody the wrong way. And then from a policy standpoint or a kind of cultural uh, public cultural fight standpoint, he should be on the side of the anti-elitists. Um, and yet things haven't been going so well for him. Although we should should note that in the after the b- debate in the in the 538 analysis of who won and who lost, their polling, I believe, showed that DeSantis did um, did the best. Um, so there were, I think, which I think is accounted for by the fact, and, and Ramaswamy was second, and then it was Haley, um, Nikki Haley. Uh, I think that the, the DeSantis finding may be the result of there are a lot of people who want DeSantis to do well, you know, in life. And so when they saw the debate um, and he behaved... If you look at DeSantis's answers on paper, you know, he was the one who was able to say, you know, I did this and I did that. And I actually like instead of all of this hot air, I achieved things. He just didn't do it in a, in a very charismatic way on the debate stage. We were struck by an article in The Atlantic this week by Catherine Eden, Luke Schaefer and Timothy Nelson what the best places in America have in common, which really should have been titled what the worst places in America have in common, honestly, but whatever. It is drawn from a new book by the three of them. They're scholars, two of them at Princeton and one of them at University of Michigan. Their new book is called The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. And they try to understand what places in America are best and worst to live in across sort of several combined measures of well-being, literal health, literal wealth and income, and then an opportunity to rise. Uh, it's interesting at both ends because it, it tries to capture what makes the worst places so bad and the best places so good. So Emily, you called this article to our attention. What was it that struck you about it? I was interested because it ends up with these counterintuitive lists, right? So they create something they call the index of deep disadvantage. And then they find that the most disadvantaged places in the country are rural. Some of them are places where there are lots of Native Americans. That seems like not surprising, given what we know about high concentrations of poverty. But they leave out most of the cities in the country, um, except for like Cleveland and Detroit and a few other kind of post-industrial cities. Rochester. Yeah, Rochester. Mostly, though, we're in Appalachia, South Texas, and the Southern Cotton Belt. And so then what these scholars uh, say these places have in common is a history of resource extraction and human exploitation. And they go into the idea that there are like colonies within the United States, which I was like less taken with. But, um, But I do think that this 
notion that there's a lot of rural disadvantage and suffering. I mean, it goes along with the deaths of despair that other economists have talked about and with, you know, what we know about the opioid epidemic. It was also interesting to me that this index of deep disadvantage does not explicitly take into account crime. And, you know, to me, that's like a feature of living in a um, high poverty neighborhood in a lot of cities that is fearsome. It is also true that there is a lot of crime in rural communities. And so they call out, for example, LaFleur County in Mississippi, where um, black residents said to them that violence was their number one problem. And the rate of death from interpersonal violence there was four times the national average and well above Chicago. I do think there is like something really troubling happening in these parts of rural America. And I guess one question I have, and I need to figure out a way to frame this that isn't just like terrible, but these places feel forgotten to me, right? They're places that are being depleted. People are moving away from Cities are places that are thriving. Yes, they have these pockets of suffering and disadvantage within them, but they're not like lost as a locale. I mean, is there a way in which like America is just turning its back on these communities? But also like, is it okay that people are moving away from them given how just like kind of struck they are? I should say what I liked about the disadvantage um, term rather than poor was it took into account health outcomes and social mobility, it kind of just centered the conversation on other things to look at. Um, the thing is that the forgotten man and woman was supposed to be the thing that Donald Trump, I mean, put it in his inaugura inaugural address, um, that this is supposed to be the part of the country that Donald Trump cares deeply about. And um, and this analysis, there was nowhere in this analysis in terms of the problems the, the the multifaceted problems and the possible solutions, which I felt like I was left hungry for. I realized they wrote a whole book and and I have not read the book. So I don't, it's a deficiency in my and I, um, study, not in their work necessarily, but um, that the solutions are really complicated and, and, you know, building um, the, the, the networks of community that exist in the, the, the healthier places I mean, at one point when they were identifying the healthy places in the Midwest, they go back to the 1862 Homestead Act, which was basically allowed land ownership to be widely available, and it was not a situation of extraction. Um, so when you have to go back, when you're going back to 1862, not when you have to, but when you're going back to 1862, we're talking about deep um, uh, characteristics here that are hard to remedy. I, sh I guess my point is that it's not only not a part of the com public conversation, but even the champions of it are not talking about it in public, although the solution seems so tricky. And the only final point is I kept thinking of Barbara Kingsolver when we were when I was reading this, because the relationship between extraction um, and the story she tells in Demon Copperhead um, was just like one to one. I mean, it was perfectly rendered. I, I just want to make a couple of points here. One is that I think when you think about the solutions, and this this goes to your question, Emily, should people stay? I mean, one of the solutions is you build institutions in communities that give people something to do, that give them activities that they are less inclined to, that they have more fulfillment in their life, they're less inclined to get addicted to dope in various forms. Um, but it's really hard to build institutions when there's so little social capital, when there's so little social trust, when government itself is so deeply incompetent. This is one point that they make really well is that 
in these poor places, government is really bad because it's pretty corrupt. There's no media watching it or very little media watching it. The people who work in government are often using it as an opportunity for graft and they are they're not the best people. And so the the institution that that is at best equipped to sort of start kickstart uh, a poor community government is actually ill-equipped because the people who are running it are not very good at it or are deeply corrupt. So that's one point that that was very depressing. Another point that I just that I thought was interesting is, is to, to go to the sort of when they talk about what is the what are the most successful places they do talk about it these upper Midwest places relatively low inequality, lots of home ownership, um, pretty white in general, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan. Um, they're not talking about the most economically dynamic places in America. They're not talking about where America's economic growth and innovation are coming from. They're not talking about the places where immigrants are. And I wonder if that's a, again, we haven't read the book, so I don't know, but I wonder if that's a kind of a caesura in the analysis, which is there's lots of poverty where immigrants are and lots of inequality, but there's also this tremendous opportunity and energy and flourishing. And I, I feel like that's, when I think about what is, what's characteristically American, uh, like American success, it is this story of, of urban, it's urban poverty to urban success to suburban uh, complacency. Like that's, that's how we roll in America. And this is sort of saying, actually, the nicest place to be is like some suburb of Minneapolis, probably, where you know, there's a good public school. Yeah. So I had a similar, or I guess I also noticed this. And then I thought about two things. So one is that I imagine they come up with this list of, I like the idea of it being more complacent because they're looking at inequality and mobility and cities have mobility for a few people, but then they have like tremendous inequality. And that's probably why, you know, LA and New York, San Francisco, Chicago, et cetera, are not on this list. It's a sort of other side of the coin view of what, you know, is best in America. It's not a meritocratic um, conception right, and right, portrayal right, so much right. as like, right, because they talk about, they say these counties are unusually rich in social capital. Residents are connected to one another through volunteerism, membership in civic organizations, and participation in other community activities. Which honestly seems great. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like who Little wouldn't League, want that? right? Yeah. It's like your yeah. church, your Little League, your community picnic. It's different. I mean, I don't know, David, from the time you spent in Vermont, whether it that resonated with you, because I don't think it's just like the Midwest that can be like this. I do wonder about the fact that these places are disproportionately white, because my fear is that part of what stitches them together is the kind of homogenous uh, nature of these places. And I would like to think that they could diversify and be full of immigrants and, you know, people of color and still operate this way. But I wonder. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are sitting on your porch in the upper Midwest. I always have you sitting on your porch when you guys are chattering. Well, let me tell you, you about the porch. porch. John doesn't have a porch. I, I don't have my back porch. It's not a porch, really. Yeah, we definitely have an outdoor space. It would not really count as a porch, um, although there is much discussion about uh, someday building a screened-in porch. I love screened-in porches so much because I hate mosquitoes so much. 
And I love screened in porches. And yes, but anyway, when you're sitting on the future screened in porch, John, on the imaginary screened in porch, what are you going to be chattering about? A couple of things um, I'm chattering about. The first is that um, I was I had an enjoyable morning this morning um, listening to the new um, uh, the new podcast by the late night hosts, um, Strike Force Five, which is um, on on Spotify. But um, anyway, they're the five of them are um, putting together this podcast so they can pay their staffs who are, um, uh, you know, a lot of them are not in the same, u- in the writer's union. And so, um, those hosts have been paying their staffs out of their own pockets. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's for a good cause for the staffers who can't work because of the writer's strike, but also, um, uh, it was just a, an enjoyable window. Um, but my actual chatter is, um, is about, uh, what we do with our, um, instead of having cocktails, um, what we do with our with our leisure time, and so people may have heard the story, but it was um, that the um, the French are um, throwing out basically a hundred Olympic sized swimming pools worth of wine um, at a cost of about two hundred sixty million dollars because the French are just not drinking wine the way they used to in order to keep the business going. So the average I should note the average French citizen drinks about forty liters of wine per year compared to. 136 liters in uh, 1926. So the French aren't drinking wine. They have to throw it out to keep the price high. Um, But I also, this came out, uh, my colleague Laura Doan pointed out on the same day that a new study showed that in America, use of cannabis and psychedelic drugs were at all time highs. 44% of young adults, 19 to 30, and 28% of adults, 35 to 50, reported using marijuana in the prior 12 months record high for those age groups. And more than 11% of young adults said they used cannabis on at least 20 of the prior 30 days, double the share from a decade ago. So anyway, those were two figures that I thought were interesting in um, connection with each other. And then finally, the US Open, apparently, if you play on court 17, the players have been complaining, because the smell of pot is so strong it's wafting over in one of the players said it smelled like Snoop Dogg's living room. Wow. Emily, what's your chatter? My chatter this week is about the U.S. Open, which I have been happily watching. And I was watching Taylor Townsend and Caroline Wozniacki have these comebacks this week, which is so great. And they both are mothers, which is so amazing to me. And then I like looked up how many women in the tennis tour are moms. And it turns out there are 10 mothers playing in the US Open main draw this year. 10! And includes other like big deal players like Azarenka and Svitolina. Um, I'm just super impressed by that. And I kind of love that the sport has figured out or that women have figured out how to make the sport possible for them in this incredibly high level after giving birth. My title this week an email from John sent me down a rabbit hole. Actually, it did exactly the opposite. It sent me up a tree into a tree canopy, not down a rabbit hole. John sent me a link to the UK Tree of the Year competition page, which is hosted by Britain's Woodland Trust. I am a tree nut. I have a tree tattoo. And insofar as I have religion, it is based on the idea of tree spirits and mountain gods. And the UK Tree of the Year competition is a wonderful thing. So, Every year, there are nominated a dozen or so trees around the country uh, based on a theme. This year's theme is urban trees. Each tree is gorgeous, but it also has a story. And in fact, the story is what's important. So, for example, this year, 
among the trees nominated is the Greenwich Park Sweet Chestnut, which is a twisted sweet chestnut tree that was planted at the request of King Charles II. After he took the throne in 1660, he he redesigned Greenwich Park with the grand plan, and this tree is a survivor of that. There's the Holm Oak Blitz tree, which is a tree that survived the near total destruction of the city of Exeter by German bombers. There's the 800-year-old Adelston's Crouch Oak, which Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, that is, picnicked under, and John Wycliffe gave sermons under it. And the people of the UK will vote, and a UK will tree will win, and it will then take its place in an even more glamorous competition, which is the European Tree of the Year competition, which dates back to 2011. So it's pretty new. And that celebrates individual trees across Europe. And the, the European contest, in turn, has inspired the Canadian Tree of the Year competition, the Australian Tree of the Year competition, the Asian Tree of the Year contest. If you like me, look at pictures of trees the way teenage boys look at porn, these contest pages are going to send you into raptures. It's The photos are amazing. It's wonderful. Um, but one thing I learned, and here's a chance, GabFest listeners, for us to, to rise up and create something wonderful. There's no American tree of the year. There's a shrub of the weekend. Uh, <laughs> don't mock. Don't mock. This is important. Their individual cities, Austin, Texas, has a tree of the year, but there's no national contest. America has the world's oldest trees. It has the world's largest trees. It has the world's tallest trees. And if we cannot find individual trees to celebrate in this country and to honor, and, to, and we give prizes like there's no tomorrow, like we have the Academy Awards, the Emmy Awards, the Tony Awards, there has to be a U.S. Tree of the Year competition. It needs to get started so let's get it started, America. There is Des Moines' sprig of the fortnight. I'm not. I'm not engaging with you. Um, I you can, you can live <laughs> in your small I, world. I totally agree with. I totally agree with you. And there's a Harvard art historian, Jennifer Roberts, who teaches the value of immersive attention by making her students stare at a piece of art for three hours, as a way of um, encouraging long looking and breaking out of the weird snack snacking of the world that's been caused by basically smartphones. And I think that you should do this with trees. I think that there should be trees that are like um, Father Jim Martin has a list of places to pray in New York. And I think there should be trees that that reward three hours of looking. Oh, my God. When my girlfriend and I were down in, I think it was Georgetown, South Carolina, we were in a rainstorm and there were these, uh, I guess they were live oaks and we were under this enormous live oak in someone's backyard and it was raining and the wind was blowing and i felt a sense of awe like i've rarely felt in my my life let's get the tree of the year contest started also one other quick chatter actually this morning i listened to the first episode of one year 1955 the slate podcast by our good friend josh levine um where he does uh covers a year by looking at a bunch of different amazing stories from that year. And this first episode is about a little league team from Charleston, South Carolina, an all black little league team in Charleston, South Carolina that um, made it to the little league world series that year. And it's about the kind of terrible things that happened on the way. Amazing, amazing story. Check out one year, 1955. I'm Josh Levine, the host of Slate's podcast, one year in our new season, we're firing up our flux capacitors and taking you way back. 1955. 1955. Oh, wah, bah, 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 
We'll bring you 1955's weirdest, wildest, and most captivating stories. You'll learn about forgotten pioneers, like the TV weather girls who took the country by storm. A cute, sexy young woman was very appealing, and I can quite understand why. And you'll discover moments from the past that resonate deeply with the present, like how a bizarre conspiracy theory infected the nation's politics. Oh my God, they're trying to establish a prison camp. This is going to be Siberia, USA. One year, 1955. Out now, wherever you listen. Listeners, you've got chatters. Please keep them coming to us. Please tweet them to us at SlateGabFest if you must, but definitely email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. So many really, really good ones. And actually, there was someone sent us a link to a killer show, a sing-along at a killer show of uh, Mr. Brightside, which we're not going to chatter about, but I just want to thank you for sending that because it was brought so much pleasure to my week. But our listener chatter this week is from Brian Jackson, and he's calling about our uh, my hometown airport, DCA. Hey, GabFest. This is Brian Jackson from Denver, Colorado, with this week's listener chatter. From time to time, all asphalt needs to be replaced, which is fine when it's on a six-lane highway or at a giant airport with a lot of runways. But when it's Washington National Airport, which has just two main runways and only one that's long enough to land some of the planes that arrive there, it becomes a whole thing. For six hours, starting at the stroke of midnight, a pit crew-like team of pavers rips out a strip of pavement and replaces it with quick-dry asphalt that sets just in time for the first flight out at 6 a.m. Jordan Pascal of DCist wrote a play-by-play of how they do it. I hope it entertains you as much as it did me. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. Email us at GabFest at Slate.com. And definitely come to our live show in Madison on October 25th at the Majestic Whoa, wasn't expecting that. Well, it was. I felt like we needed to add a little something special for the live show. You see, that's the kind of that's the kind of surprise, oral joy that will be available should you show up in person. For sure. Someone asked me, a friend of mine who lives in Madison, was saying, "Well, what what actually happens at the live Gab Fest?" Everything. And I was like, I don't know. We tape a podcast. It's <laughs> no, really fun. Oh my God! The, it's the cathedral <laughs> effect. Do you guys know what the um, cathedral effect is? Well, you will know it if you go. Oh, all right. Whoa. Even Jonathan told us. We're going we're gonna to learn along with you, Emily and I. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Uh, how are you? Emily, your topic. Set us up. This topic so- comes from my son, Simon. He was just asking a kind of late in the dorm night question, I think, or it could be one. What would it take for you to join a volunteer militia to defend your country? Um, I think Simon was thinking about the Ukrainians who are joining militias in Ukraine and have a clear sense that their country's whole existence and freedom is at stake. And they're putting the lives on the line. And it's people of all different ages and 
parts of the country and people who wouldn't, you know, they don't fit the profile of young men who would normally either be drafted or volunteer to show up to pick up arms and fight. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What would it take? Like, how sure would you have to be? What kind of cause, et cetera? Well, we're in. <laughs> May I add one little- Do you get that? John, do you I know do, that reference? from the movie. Um, uh, Red Dawn. Red Dawn. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I ever watched yeah. Red Dawn, which is good to um Wolverine's What? I knew. I How knew, did you well, know? Because I'm what? Uh, I, I have know. my tentacles in all of the deep corners of the cultural experience of the American male what? of the nineteen eighties. How could you be a man of our age and not have seen Red Dawn? What were you? What was doing? I doing? I was probably watching MTV or something, or I was like you're probably cooler. You're I don't much think cooler that's true. Yeah. I don't think that's true. Yeah, it definitely um, true. Definitely true. The, um, anyway, go ahead. Uh, you know, Wolverines was also the name that the kind of rump group trying to get the Trump administration to handle COVID seriously and and uh, with with urgency. Um, they called themselves the Wolverines based on that same movie. Um, I just wanted to add one little thing, which I, I hope will uh, help the discussion, which is I was... Um, Ambassador William Taylor, the former ambassador of Ukraine, was on the show last night, and he was saying that one of the things that's with these drones that are going into Russia, part of them are being built by Ukrainians. And and then he went through and reminded me of all the different ways in which various different people in the Ukrainian population are participating in the in the resistance. So it's not just people who've gone off to carry weaponry or fire big, um, you know, uh, guns. It's, it's, um, you know, uh, locals with the, an app on their phone that basically allows them to tell intelligence where the Russian soldiers are. And that gets fed into an app that then targets those Russian soldiers that, that basically the resistance is everywhere. So I guess as we're thinking about this, you could joining the resistance wouldn't necessarily mean, you know, rushing into the teeth of oncoming that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 